And so we're glad that you're going to be with us today as we continue in our survey of the Old Testament. We're going to start today into 2 Samuel. We finished up 1 Samuel and part of 1 Chronicles last week. And so we're going to continue with our study in Samuel by going into 2 Samuel and referring to passages in 2 Chronicles as we go throughout 2 Samuel. So today, we're going to start out right after Saul has died. Remember, that's what our last lesson was about, was King Saul dying, and of course, David's uh, trouble that he had at Ziglag, which he overcame. So you would be assuming, naturally, if you didn't know the story, that, okay, everything should be okay now. Saul's dead. He's not pursuing David anymore, so David can be king. There's not going to be any problems it's going to be okay from here on out. Because remember, he's supposed to be the king of Israel. Everyone knows that. So everything's going to be okay. Well, to be very honest with you, uh, the first four chapters of 2 Samuel tell you that it doesn't work out that way. In fact, I think it's a real good lesson in life. Things don't happen as easily as we think they will. Because a lot of times we're used to fairy tales where everything works. I mean, yeah, there may be some adversity, but everybody lives happily ever after. And you're assuming that after 1 Samuel, everybody's going to live happily ever after. Well, it doesn't turn out that way. And we're going to see that especially today in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and 2. Now, we're not going to read this passage as always. There's a lot of verses here, although we may refer to some of the passages as we go along. But we're going to focus on chapter 1, first of all, and it's going to start out immediately, just a few days after uh, David is done with the Amalekites and returns to Ziglag. So let's go ahead and begin. First thing I want you to notice is this, that on the third day, after returning to Ziglag, a man came to David from the battlefield. You're saying, what battlefield? The battlefield that he just had with the Amalekites? No, no. The battle between Philistia, the Philistines, and Israel, where, first of all, Israel has fled, many were killed, Saul and his sons are dead. So someone comes from the battlefield, and he's not in good condition, the text will tell you, but he comes into Ziglag to bring news to David. So, when David questioned the man, he stated that he had escaped from the Israelite camp, that he had escaped from the Israelite camp. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. That should right there go ahead and set up a red flag in your mind. Because obviously he's escaping from the Israelite camp. So that means, number one, he's not a Jew. He's not a Hebrew. He is obviously some sort of alien who must be a servant or a slave. And they had those in those days. They're, when they would capture an area, they would make the people that they captured into servants and slaves. And so this is obviously somebody, because he's saying he is escaping from the Israelite camp. Okay, so he's escaping from Israel during the battle. So just realize what we're talking about here. So wanting to know the news, 
David asked for a report from the battle with the Philistines. Of course, it's only natural for David. He hears that this guy escaped from the camp, so he's coming from the battlefield. He wants to hear what's the news. How did Israel do? How are Saul and Jonathan? Remember, he has a special bond with Jonathan. So he wants to know the news. He wants to hear what's going on. He wants to have news from the battlefront. And we're all like that, okay? Now, you have to remember, these are not the days in which we live in now that when something's going on, we get a news report on the internet that tells you exactly what's happening at the moment and people have their cameras out and they're photographing everything. That's not the way it was back then. It's kind of like in World War II. A lot of, if you talk to somebody who's really old that lived during that day, they may not hear news from the battlefront in Europe or in Japan until a couple of months later. So this is the situation that David is in. He wants to hear the news because this is only just a few days after the battle has happened. Which, by the way, let's remind ourselves, when we look at David at Ziklag and his confrontation with the Amalekites and Saul and his death and, and the loss to the Philistines, that all happened basically around the same time, just in two different parts of the area there in Canaan, in, in Israel, but it's happening at the same time. So he wants a report. So the man reported that Israel fled before the Philistines and Saul and his sons were dead. So the guy basically says, Israel's on the run, many are dead, and the king and his sons are dead. They're dead. So they're getting this news that everything didn't go well, that the battle did not go well for Saul. So David now wants to know, because he's wanting to be sure now, because remember, Saul is the one who's been out to kill him, and he's wanting to make sure that he's not hearing a rumor. Because you know how rumors are? Oh, the king's dead. Well, the king may be very well much alive. It's just that some guy came and told you that he was dead. How do you know for sure? So David wanted to know how the men knew that Saul was dead. He wanted to know, how did this guy know this? Okay, how did this guy know this? So the man stated that he came upon Saul dying on the battlefield. He came upon Saul dying on the battlefield. So he said, he's fled, he was on the battlefield, and there was Saul, gravely wounded. Now notice some things he's leaving out of the story. The text tells us in 1 Samuel, as well as in 1 Chronicles, that Saul is severely wounded by archers. This guy is saying that Saul is gravely wounded, he's, he's dying, and he can't kill himself, and the armor bearer is already dead, and he's giving you a variant story. We're going to talk about that here in a moment, okay? But he's telling something a little bit different, but he's saying that Saul's dying on the battlefield. He then goes on and says what we knew before, that Saul requested that the man kill him so that the Philistines could not capture him. Remember, Saul had asked that in 1 Samuel chapter 31, that he, that he asked the armor bearer to run him through with a sword, kill him, make sure he's dead, so that he didn't have to go through the torture of the Philistines 
if they captured him. So basically, he's repeating something similar. He knows what's going on here. And he's saying that basically, though, Saul is asking him. He's asking this young man to do it, this servant, this slave, okay, to do this. So the guy who turns out to be an Amalekite, okay, killed Saul and took his crown and armlet Text says bracelet, but it's basically an armlet, something that was worn on the arm, which he brought to David. And David, let's be honest, would know what this crown looked like, because remember, he has served with Saul in the royal palace. In He Saul's son-in-law, so he would know what the crown looks like. And of course, he would know what the armlet, or the bracelet, as the text says, that Saul was wearing. He would know that those are Saul's. So this Amalekite, he doesn't have any bones about it. He kills Saul because Saul asked for it. He took the crown and an armlet and he brought it to David. Okay? Brought it to David. Now let's stop for a moment because if you read this guy and his story, that is completely different than what the text tells you in 1 Samuel 31 and in 1 Chronicles chapter 10, okay? The stories don't match up. The story in 1 Samuel and 1 Chronicles has Saul asking his armor bearer to kill him, but he's afraid to do it, and he won't. He refuses. Saul then falls on his own sword kills himself, the armor bearer seeing that the king is dead now, kills himself. That's what 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles says. This text is telling you that this guy says Saul has him kill him, which he obliges and kills, runs Saul through with a sword, takes his crown and the arm bracelet, and then runs to Ziglag to David to tell the story. Now, the controversy has been, and the discussion has been ever since this, which story is right? Which story is true? And so people have tried to come up with some sort of conclusion here as to what's going on here. What's going on here? Well, we're going to come to a conclusion about this as we get further into this text, okay? As we get further into this text, which is only going to be a short bit of time, okay? Short bit of time. Now, I want you to notice the reaction when David hears the news. David and his men responded to the report by tearing their clothes and mourning for Saul. Tearing their clothes and mourning for Saul. The text will tell you that when they tore their clothes, which was natural, you're going to see that throughout the Old Testament, it's very much an expression of grief. We've seen that before. They will tear their clothes. Remember how the high priest tore his clothes when Jesus said, I am? He tore his clothes. That's very much an expression in their culture, in the Jewish culture, of anguish and grief. They would mourn that way. So he tore his clothes. And it says, the text tells you, that they fasted until the evening. They fasted until the evening time. So they did not eat anything else. They were mourning out loud, weeping, mourning for Saul and David. Now, when you read that, I'll be honest with you, you're probably thinking to yourself, 
Is that possible? How, how is that possible? Because David has been running from Saul. That's why he's with the Philistines. Saul's been trying to kill him forever. What's going on here? Well, folks, I'm going to tell you right now that even though Saul was bad, and even though Saul wasn't a good king and, and he was out to kill David, it's very evident that David loved Saul. And it's very evident because of the role that Saul had in Israel as the king that they, he and his men, even though they were running from Saul, still held him in high regard, still held the nation in high regard, and they were mourning not just the death of Saul, but his sons whom they loved, Jonathan and his other brothers, and then all of Israel because of the suffering of their defeat, which would be their brethren, people that they knew who had died in the battle. So they responded with grief, okay? They responded with grief. Now, you would think, okay, wow, guys brought some news. It's going to be okay now. Battle's okay. David's going to be all right now. Well, the text doesn't stop there because it goes a little bit further, which kind of helps you to realize that David doesn't believe him. Doesn't believe who? The Amalekite. I'll show you why, okay? If you go further in the text. So David wanted to know more about the young man and asked where he was from, okay? He wanted to know more about this guy, all right? Because this is going to tell him something, all right? It's going to tell him something, and we'll see what's going on here in a moment. He's going to ask him some key questions because he's going to, first of all, he's going to want to find out, is this just any Amalekite? Because we just killed a bunch of Amalekites who happen to be on the battlefield. Or is this somebody, he said he had escaped from the camp of Israel. Is this somebody who has been living among the Jews, among the Hebrews? Okay, among the Hebrews at this time. So he's asking more about the young man and he asked where he was from. Now, I want you to notice his response, because you're going to say, huh, that's interesting, what's he saying? Well, the man identified himself that he was, he identified that he was the son of an alien in Israel. A son of an alien in Israel. Now, what's he referring to there? What's he referring to? He's referring to the fact that he was somebody who lived among the Jews, who would be aware of the culture, would be aware of what's good for them, and he would see and know what's right and wrong from a Jewish cultural perspective because he identifies himself as an alien. What do you mean, an alien? Well, remember, that's what was used in the law, referring to those who were not of the Jewish community who were living among the Jews, and there were special laws concerning how they were to operate. So this guy's identifying himself as being someone who's not Jewish, he's an Amalekite, who lives among the Jews. And the reason why he's probably living among the Jews is because he's a servant of some type or a slave, because it said earlier that he escaped 
from the camp of the Israelites. And you're saying, well, what does that have to do with anything? Well, if you look at the very next thing that David says and does, you'll understand. You'll understand. So David questioned why he was not afraid to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. Why he was not afraid to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. Now, we've heard that phrase before. Now, remember when we've heard it before? That was during the two opportunities that David had to already before kill Saul. Remember when he was in the cave going to the restroom, so to speak, and he had the opportunity to kill him there. The other time was when he went into the camp of Saul and, and the army of Israel because they were in a deep sleep from the Lord. He had an opportunity to kill there. And both times he told his men, no, he was not going to what? Lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. So it's very obvious that this is something that was very much a viewpoint, something that was held dear among the Hebrews at this time. Now, how do I know that? Because remember, when Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him, it says very clearly that the armor bearer was what? If you go back to the text, chapter 31, it's only 13 verses there. If you go back, it says that the armor bearer was afraid. Now, if you're reading that, initially you would be thinking to yourself, why would he be afraid? He's on the battlefield. Who's going to even know that he did that? Yeah, every pity would know. And he's probably afraid because that's something you don't do, which was, and we're seeing that here with David, as he's confronting this young Amalekite, why did you lift your hands against the Lord's anointed? See, if this guy had said, I'm an Amalekite, but he hadn't said that he had lived among the Jews, he might have had, he might have been okay because he wouldn't have known any different about how the Jews, the Hebrews, viewed the king. Okay? So here's what happens probably to the shock of this guy. So you're thinking, this guy's probably thinking to himself, hey, I'm going to take this crown, I'm going to take this armlet, go down to David, give him the news, and I'm going to be rewarded. Well, that's not what happens. David then ordered the young man executed for his own testimony of killing Saul. He ordered him executed. And basically, he makes a statement, which we'll see here throughout the scripture many times, is your blood will be on your own head. You are responsible for your own death. You, by your own testimony, have killed yourself. Now, all right, let's get back to the issue of this story that he gives versus what 1 Samuel, 1 Chronicles gives. So what we're going to see here is the guy's character is such that we can't believe his story. Now, there are components of his story that are true. The components are Saul, and, Saul is dead. Saul did ask to be killed, but he probably didn't ask this guy. And we also see the component that he does take the crown and the armlet. So was he witness to Saul's death? Yes. But did he twist the story for his own benefit? Probably it ends up, though, getting him killed 
by David because he thinks that he's going to benefit by telling David that he has killed his enemy, not knowing that David is bound by something more sacred, something more of a devotion, first of all to the Lord and then to Saul because he loves Saul. So he has the guy killed, okay? Has the guy killed. Now, then what happens afterwards, and I would encourage you to read it on your own. I'm just going to make one statement here. David composed a lamentation concerning the death of Saul and Jonathan. Concerning the death of Saul and Jonathan. And in that lamentation, David expresses how much he loved both of them and what how Israel will grieve the loss of these two mighty men from their nation. In fact, this was so moving to David what happened. He commanded, the text will tell you, that this was to be recorded and remembered throughout Judah, the loss of Saul and Jonathan through this lamentation. So that brings us to the end of chapter 1. Now, again, you're probably thinking to yourself, okay, well, George, hey, that, that, okay, so he gets the news. It's all right now. He's king. He's going to be king. He's going to be the king of Israel. Everything's going to go okay now because Saul's out of the way. Everybody knows he's supposed to be the king. Everything should be okay now, right? No, no, it shouldn't be. And uh, it's not going to be. And we see that starting in chapter 2 because the transition isn't that easy. And again, this is not a fairy tale. This is real life. This is reality of what's happening in David's life. Because remember now, remember when he was a teenager, a young boy, he's anointed by Samuel to be king. He then goes and serves in Saul's household for a few years. And then he's on the run for a lot of years. And so now he comes to the point where we're going to look at the whole issue of the kingship. So that brings us to chapter 2. And I'm going to basically divide chapter 2 into three sections, okay? Three sections. We're going to see him becoming the king of Judah. That's first of all. We're going to see that in verses 1 to 7. And then we're going to look at the issue of two kings. There's two kings. How's there two kings? Saul's dead. Well, we're going to see what that is. We're going to see, first of all, Saul's one son who survives, and then we're going to see a conflict that happens between the two sides. And so, really, I've entitled this whole section here a divided kingdom because you would think that everything would be okay. Remember David, he's the hero. He's the one who's anointed. Everybody, but it doesn't work out that way. It actually is a little bit more complicated. So let's go through chapter 2 together. Here's the first thing. So right after this, it doesn't say how long after this, but right after this, David asked the Lord if he should return to any of the cities in Judah. Okay? So he's basically asking the Lord, should I go back into Israel, back to my tribe, which is Judah? And which city should I go to? Should I return? Should I leave Ziglag in Philistia and go back to Judah? That's a natural question for him to ask because remember now, 
His whole reason for being in Philistia is because Saul's after him. But Saul's gone now. And David has that calling. So he decides, is this time? So what does he do? He asks the Lord. Notice now David goes to the Lord. He goes to the Lord and asks what he should do. So the Lord told David to return to Hebron, which he did with his men and their families. So remember, his men, 600 men and their families, went over with David to Iktish of Gath, and they were given Ziklag. Well, those same 600 men and their families and David and his two wives now go to Hebron, which is in Judah, and basically that's where they settle in. Now, the text just very briefly tells you that the men of Judah anointed David king of Judah. Wow, that's very interesting. Okay? So that's actually quite intriguing because here's the thing. The heir to the throne would be a son of Saul. And we're going to see that here in a moment. But the tribe of Judah decides we're going to anoint our own king. So the men of Judah come together and they say, David is going to be our king. Now, remember, David was, I mean, he was very smart. Remember when he would do the raiding, and especially when he got the goods from the Amalekites that they had taken from their raiding? What did he do with that? He sent gifts throughout all the cities of southern Judah and, the, and to those who were allies and basically gave them gifts. He was basically, it's, it's called politics, folks. He was networking, and that's paying off now because now that he has returned, because remember, he's the hero, he's King David. I mean, he's David, the slayer of the Philistines, and he wasn't involved in this battle that Philistines had just waged on Israel. They decide, because Saul's dead, that they want to make him the king, okay? They want to make him the king. The men of Judah also did something else. They reported that the men of Jabesh-Gilead buried Saul and his sons. So they gave a report, because probably he's asking, David would be asking, because he only knows what this Amalekite guy told him. He wants to know more information about Saul. So probably what was told to David is what the men of Jabesh-Gilead did, which we see in 1 Samuel chapter 31, where what? They went through the night from Jabesh Gilead all the way to where Saul's bodies were and his sons were hung on the wall, got their bodies, brought them, brought them back to Jabesh Gilead, burned them, and buried their bones. So he hears about that. So they reported that the men of Jabesh Gilead had buried them. So here's what David does. Again, he's networking. He's doing the proper thing here, okay? So David sent men to bless Jabesh Gilead for their kindness to Saul and his sons in their death. So what's he doing here? He's doing something that would be very much customary in their time. He would send someone to bring a blessing from him commending them for doing the right thing, for showing honor to Saul and his sons for what they did. 
Why would he do that? It's called networking today, folks. He's just establishing relationships. Just establishing relationships. Because here's what else he does. He also told them that the house of Judah had anointed him as their king. So more than just going and saying to them, hey, you did a great job, you did honor by, by, by Saul and his sons. Oh, by the way, I want to tell you that my brethren in Judah, the house of Judah, the tribe of Judah, have anointed me to be their king. Just letting them know what's going on. Well, that brings us to our section, second section, our second main section, which we'll divide in, into two parts. And that's really what goes on now in the rest of Israel. Okay? So remember Abner? Abner was Saul's uncle. He was also the commander of the armies of Israel. Well, he's not dead. Okay? He's not dead, but here's what he did. He took Saul's son, Oshibetheth, and made him king over Israel. Sorry, I, you know, I had a little bit of a hard time pronouncing that. I'm sure you will too. But he made him king over Israel. Which, by the way, would not be shocking. Why? Because he would be the legitimate heir. He would be the surviving son of Saul. Because remember, Saul and his other three sons are dead. Okay? Now, Oshibosheth was 40 years old. So this is how old Oshibosheth was. So that tells you Saul was probably in his 60s or 70s, folks. Okay? He was 40 years old when he became king and only reigned two years. Wow, he had a short reign as a king. So the, so the writer is telling you right off the bat, he was 40 years old, he only reigned two years. And we're going to see why he only reigned two years next week. Okay? Now, the text then goes on and tells you that David was king over Judah for seven and a half years. Seven and a half years. Okay? So... That tells you, that, that's going to tell you something. Well, wait a minute, now you're wondering, okay, if Oshibotheth is only the king for two years, what's going on in those other five years? That's kind of conveying to you that everything's not okay and everybody's not just ready to make David the king. And I want you to see something here. So remember now, he's anointed to be king as a teenager by Samuel. He then goes on, serves in king's, Saul's court for a few years. He then's on the run from Saul for many years. Then he's got to wait before being king over all of Israel for another seven and a half years. Now, of course, he's the king of Judah, and we're going to see there's some issues that arise during that, but it doesn't happen immediately. And let's just be honest. That's life, isn't it? That's the way life is. It's not easy, even for somebody like David. Like David. So then what I want you to see is the next section, which is basically there's now a conflict. Because basically, you have two groups of people. You have Judah, and of course, there's the other 11 tribes who are under two kings. 
You've got Judah under the kingship of David, and you've got the rest of Israel under the kingship of Ashibosheth, who is basically being mentored or guided by his uncle, great uncle, Abner, okay, who is pretty much a political power broker. We're going to see that. So then you come to the whole issue now in chapter 2, verses 8 through 32, where we see the two kings issue and the conflict. So Abner and his men met Joab and his men at the pool of Gibbon. Now, this is the first time you're really going to be introduced to this guy named Joab. You're going to get really familiar with him throughout 2 Samuel as well as throughout 1 Chronicles. And we're going to see him even up into the beginning chapters of 1 Kings. He is a cousin to David. He is from Bethlehem. So he has a relationship to David, okay? He's from David's household, and we're going to see that he becomes and is pretty much the commander of David's army. So he's obviously the commander of the armies of Judah. Now, Joab has been with David. He's part of the 600. He and his two brothers were part of David's men. We're going to hear more about them later on, especially when we talk about David's mighty men in 1 Chronicles, chapter 11, which we'll get to here in a few weeks. So he meets Joab at the pool of Gabon. So they're at this pool, body of water. They're on one side, they're on one side. They're looking at each other. Now, they agreed to allow 12 from each side to engage in ritual combat. Now remember I told you back then that they did war in several different ways, okay? Remember, we've already seen one way that they do it, and that's fight out where they fight against each other. We know that. They line up and they fight against each other. But we already saw another way in which they had a champion. Remember, this is from the story of David and Goliath, where the Philistines had a champion, which was Goliath, and he called for the champion of Israel to determine the outcome of the battle. Well, now we're going to be introduced to a third way of how they did war, and that was is that they would select a number of warriors to go against the same number of warriors from the other side, and that would determine how the battle went, okay? So they agreed to allow 12 from each side. Now, what happens, just one verse to explain it, is very interesting. The 12 men from each side, killed each other as they battled. In fact, it wasn't much of a battle. The text tells you that they each grabbed each other's head and thrust their sword into the other guy's side, and they all died, 24 men together at the same time. Not much of a battle. That's pretty indecisive of a battle. So what happens because of that, because no one side is the winner, the rest of them decide to battle. So that was followed by a fierce battle in which Abner and his men fled as they were losing. Okay? So what happens here now is, is that they, everybody starts battling and it doesn't go well for the people from the Israel camp. Not from the Judah camp, they're winning. And so Abner and the guys who are with him decide to hightail it. They decide to retreat. 
and they are followed by the men of Judah who are out to get them. Now, Joab, one of his brothers, okay, who was, it, the text tells you he could run, pursued Abner, who warned him to turn aside before killing him. So as they're going along, you'll see an interaction where Abner says, is that you? He mentions Joab's brother's name. You know, turn aside and take out one of the younger men and use his armor and claim his armor for your house because if you come against me, I'm going to kill you. You know, he's warning him, don't bother with me. I mean, he's an older guy, but he's a warrior. He's letting him know you're, you're not going to do well here. Well, it tells you that Joab's brother decides he's going to pursue because it's quite a prize. If I kill Abner, I kill the commander of the army. Well, what ends up happening is, is that Abner turns around, places his spear down, and runs Joab's brother through with the spear, kills him immediately. Well, you could tell that that's not going to go well, okay? Because you're talking about people who operate by an eye for the eye and a tooth for tooth, and they operate by the whole concept of vengeance. So what now happens is, is Joab and his other brother, they want Abner's head for killing their brother, okay? It's the whole issue of vengeance. We still see it happening in the Middle East today. So after being pursued by Joab, so what ends up happening is they, they go after Abner because they want vengeance, and they pursue him to a certain point where the man of Benjamin, so it's telling you which tribe was with Abner, the men of Benjamin surrounded Abner as a unit, protecting him, made a stand. And so what did Abner do? He called to him to called him to a ceasefire on the battlefield. Basically, he says to Joab, Hey Joab, there's no sense going through this and watching many more of the brethren dying over this. Call an end to this, and we'll end this. I'll go my way, you go your way. And of course, it's interesting because Joab does that. Now you're saying, wow, that's pretty, that's pretty, uh, pretty cool of Joab to just call an end to it because he's going out for vengeance here. You know, he's just going to let it go. Well, we're going to see next week that that's not really Joab's intention. We'll see it later on. Okay. So Abner and his men returned to Israel as Joab and his other brother buried his slain brother. And the text tells you that as Abner and his men returned back to the Israel ter territory from the 11 tribes, Joab and his brother then take their brother and bury him in their father's tomb in Bethlehem. So they journey up to bury their brother and then journey back to Hebron and they do it all in one night. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Quite a feat. But that's kind of where they were at and the rituals that they would keep and the honor that they would give by burying their brother in the tomb of their fathers in Bethlehem. So that ends where we're at right now. So what do we see now? We're seeing that the transition isn't going that smoothly. Just because Saul is dead doesn't mean that David immediately ascends to the throne of all Israel. Oh, he's king, but he's just king of one tribe. And there's a civil war going on now. 
Next week, we're going to see some more things happen before that kind of move us to the point where David becomes king. But he's not even going to become king in chapters 3 and 4, as we're going to see. But we're going to see some more events happening that lead us to the point where in chapter 5, finally, David is selected as king.